All right, Rowdy Gaines, welcome, welcome to my podcast, buddy. How are you doing, mate? Good, my friend, Brad Hawk. I love you, buddy. I have missed you so much. I, I love you too. You anymore because you're not at Auburn. This COVID mess and everything. I know it's uh, nuts. It's good to actually see your face, which I haven't seen in a long time. I know, man. It's crazy. I mean, it, it's a trip to even hear you say that. And I've told you this many times. You know, growing up in Australia, you were you were my first <laughs> memory of the Olympic Games. Is that Judy walking back there? <laughs> yeah, that was my wife. Yeah, Judy. Yeah, she's walking back there. There's. Um, hey, what's up? What's up? on the podcast now oh gosh <laughs> yeah you're officially on the podcast <laughs> she's happy now <laughs> no but listen mate you were my first memory of the olympics and just to hear you say that you miss me is just incredible you know i always pinch myself when i hear that because just sitting at home as a young kid in australia just um you know you have your first memories of the olympics and, and the 84 olympics was it for me you know it was like watching it on tv and seeing this superstar Rowdy Gaines, you know, win three gold medals, and then uh, and now we're now we're really good friends. So it's it's still a, a very special thing for me. I I, I consider you a, an incredibly dear friend. I've known you for twenty five years anyway. Sorry, that's my cat now. I got Judy, and now our cat. And you got you get it all in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you are a, an incredible person, and we've always had this uh, incredible bond. And uh, you were a sprinter. I was a sprinter. Mm. You went to Auburn. And I went to Auburn. You won a national championship. Oh, wait a second. I didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you helped a lot, so that was good. Um, tell me, look, I, I heard you got a new job, and I'm, I'm excited to hear that in terms of the, what you're doing at USA Swimming anyway. So what, what's going on there? Yeah, it's 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 a really awesome opportunity. You know, I've I've been with the organization now for a long time. I started the USA Swimming Foundation with several other people, obviously, back in two thousand and three, um, and I left in two thousand and eight. But I, I I never really left. I've always been sort of a, an ambassador to the foundation, to USA Swimming, and doing as much as I can to spread the message of water safety. And and now, Brett, I get to kind of have an expanded role, um, mm. director of community development, and uh, to be able to go out into the the swimming community, and especially over the next year or two, you know, it's going to, our sport's going to look so different, dude, and and for me, at least I'm, I'm able to go out and hopefully be that reassuring voice, uh, that reassuring face, um, be able to visit our swim clubs all over the country, visit our board, visit our foundation donors. I mean, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot more to it now. So I'm very, very grateful to, um, to Tim Henchy and, and uh, his great leadership. And, and uh, of course, Mike Unger and Shana Ferguson, mm -hmm. who I'm, um, I'm an answer to Shana and she's just been brilliant um, so far. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. I, I don't, I'm not moving to Colorado Springs, not yet anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm still going to be here in Orlando, but uh, doing a lot more travel whenever that starts to take place again, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's cool. That sounds awesome, man. And uh, I'm happy for you. Um, you know, usually when I go through the, the podcast, we, you know, we go through people's history and their background. All that. I feel like everybody knows who Rowdy Gaines is and everybody loves you. But, but I do want to touch on something that, uh, that's obviously 
going on right now, and that is the postponement of the Olympics. And it's something that you obviously dealt with back in 80. And, and um, for anyone that knows you, they would know that you were at your peak. You know, you were, you were ready to win four gold medals. Everybody knew that. And I think you physically and mentally knew that you were, you were the man to beat at that stage. So just tell me, tell me how was that experience in 80 when it was postponed and how can we relate it to what's going on now? Well, it's, uh, it's definitely relatable, Brett, in so many different ways. I've, I've probably been on, I don't know, 40 or 50 Zoom calls um, over the last four, four, four or five months uh, because, uh, and mostly with, with club teams. Certain swimmers, I was on with it, uh, the Indiana Pro Group uh, a, a few weeks ago. And, yeah. But I'm just talking to kids, too, and just say, hey, listen, you know, my situation was a little different because uh, – Mine was literally a boycott, a cancellation. We didn't have an Olympic Games in 1980. Now it's a, we hope, knock on wood, a postponement. The other difference is my situation wasn't a matter of life and death, and and today it is a matter of life and death. So those those are two big differences. But I can certainly empathize with with something being taken away from you in about the same way. or at least the same timeline. Uh, I, I'll never forget it because it was announced in, uh, well, it was officially announced sometime in March of 1980. In fact, the opening ceremonies for the Moscow Olympic Games was 40 years ago tomorrow. Oh, wow. It's been exactly 40 years. Um, but anyway, I, I, uh, I found out the same sort of timeline. So you're building, and that's I think that's one of the huge issues that I've talked to a lot of the pro kids, especially the, the kids that were training for the Olympics. You're just so ultra focused on the task. I did a, a, a Caleb Dressel came to uh, my swim, mm. my swim camp last week at our legend swim camp. And I was talking to him a lot about it. And you know, you, you build up, it's like this balloon, right? You've been there. We've been there. You and I both have been here mm. and, and, and this balloon gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, when the Olympics do happen, it pops, and there's this huge relief when it's all over. But the building and building was happening in March, you know, and all of a sudden it pops six months before you actually get to do it. Mm. So it's completely with a, uh, a deflating feeling, and it's hard to get back into it. And um, you go through these emotions, like first denial, right? We're all in denial, and then you go through anger, and then you through, mm. go through – these phases now I hope that everybody's going through acceptance and motivation and that's that's all you can do and for me so it's almost like a traumatic event then it's you know listen it's traumatic in the in the big grand scheme of life it's not but you have to remember for you and I what's the pinnacle of success man Mm. I mean there isn't any higher in the than the Olympic Games right and you can you can count all the world championships and NCAAs and Pan Ams, all that stuff. It's all great, wonderful, high level, but nothing compares to the Olympics. And uh, it is traumatic for an athlete that trains four years. We don't have a, we don't have a world series or super bowl. It happens every year, right? I mean, it's every four years. So these poor kids now are going to have to wait five years. Um, who knows if it may be longer or may not happen at all, but uh yeah, but for me, it was it was eight long years. But I wasn't alone, Brett. I mean, I had <clears throat> a lot of people right there with me. Is there any words of advice you you 
personally gave Caleb that you might be able to share with us? Sure. I mean, I told Caleb, I said, and I've I've been telling a a lot of the kids, especially the pro kids from Indiana. um, I talked to some of the kids that uh, David Marsh coaches. I I told them, look, you're going to have, I was 25 when the the Olympics were boycotted. You're going to have 60, 70 years left to live. You've got three times a lifetime you've lived up to here, maybe, or at least twice the lifetime if you lead a healthy life, right? So let's say you live another 60 years. Dude, it's another year, you know? You can sacrifice one year out of your life because one thing you don't want to have, and I tell all of them this, is you don't want to look in the mirror 10, 15, 20 years from now and say, what if, right? That's, those are two words that you don't want to have in your vocabulary. You don't want to have regrets. And uh, for me, that's why I decided to go to 1984 because I just didn't want to have any regrets. I didn't want to look in the mirror and say, what if? What if I had gone for it? What would have happened? Um, I, it would, be, would have been impossible for me to hear the national anthem sometimes and to hear the Olympic theme music, to be able to watch the Olympics, to see the Olympic rings. Um, so I figured I'd sacrifice. For me at that time, it was three years out of my life because I had the 1981 NCAA championships as my senior year, so I had that to look forward to. Um, and then I, you know, I retired for six months and then <clears throat> decided after six months, I said, you know, win or lose, I, I've got I've to do this. I've got to commit three years out of my life. How did you do that back then? Because swimmers weren't really making money at that stage. Really, you know, how did you su- survive and support yourself? Well, um, I know after my senior year, after I graduated, I, I, had, I was on the five-year plan. So it took me five years to graduate. Um, and then in the, in the, uh, after, uh, in the middle, or right toward the third quarter of 1982, um, I moved to Austin, Texas, because my coach, Richard Quick, mm-hmm. um, and Eddie Riss, Richard, you coached with, obviously, um, and my original coach, my freshman year, Eddie Reese, um, both went to Texas, right? So I thought it was going to be a great, you know, scenario of me being able to work with both of them. Anyway, getting back to your question, when I moved to Austin, I didn't have that comfort of Auburn, right? The the uh, scholarship and the training table and all those comforts of this cocoon of Auburn. All of a sudden I was kind of fed to the wolves and was literally on my own. So, you know, I worked as a night clerk at a hotel. Uh, I worked at the Hyatt Regency in Austin, Texas for Mm. two years. My daily routine was whatever it was in the morning, six to eight, five 30, seven 30, whatever. And then I slept all day uh, afternoon practice. And then I had the 7 PM to 3 AM shift. Um, at the Hyatt. So I, wow. I literally had to do that for, you know, a while <laughs> for sure. That's the only way I made money because back then we weren't allowed to make money. You, it, it was strictly an amateur sport. So even if I wanted to go out into a swim clinic or mm-hmm. sign a swimsuit deal, I couldn't, you weren't allowed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was strictly an amateur sport. Now, sometime in <clears throat> late 1983, we, we backed it off a little bit and you were allowed to go do that, but the money had to go to you. USA Swimming, and then they wrote us a check um, for our expenses, basically what it was. So, yeah, it was a different time, Brett, mm. different time. Mm. Well, listen, then, you know, obviously in 84, you do end up winning the three gold medals. You know, how, how far off your, your peak do you think you, you really were? And then, look, in fairness to your competitors, you still beat everybody in the world. So you were still really good. But 
there, there was obviously um, you weren't the same person at that point in time, right? Right. I really wasn't that good in 1984, to be honest with you. I mean, I was good in a way that I made the Olympic team, obviously, but um, I had the world record in the 200. I didn't make the team. I got seventh in that. <clears throat> I got second in the 100, barely. Matt Biondi was third by like six one hundredths of a second. So I almost didn't make the team, at least individually. Who won that race? Uh, Mike Heath. Oh. Mike Heath, University of Florida. Okay. Uh, and. Um, Matt Biondi was third, and a guy named Chris Cavanaugh was fourth. But anyway, we, uh, when I got to the Olympics, when I got up on the, uh, the blocks, I, I probably should have been fourth or fifth. Literally, my time and, the, and my ability in 1984, I was, I was good, so I would have been fourth or fifth. There was just something about that day. I could have swam that races nine other times, Brett, and I would have lost every one of them. <laughs> I just, I wasn't that good, you know. Well, what was, were you feeling I, behind the block then? There was something going on. I mean, obviously there was some magic happening and you and, and things clicked. What is it specifically? Maybe just even some advice that you might have for people that are going into their first Olympics or second Olympics, whatever it is, you know, what clicked for you that day? I think for me, Brett, um, and you can you can certainly relate to that because you made what three Olympic teams four three I made two but yeah two uh, yeah so so you know then you know you know making that second Olympic team you know is a little bit more difficult but then yeah. you're also older you're more mature you know your body better mm -hmm. the biggest factor for me why I felt like what you said that magic happened for me was the fact that I was the only swimmer among those eight swimmers that made the Olympic team in 1980. So I kind of felt like, not in a cocky way, but in a deserving way, this was my moment, right? You guys didn't suffer what I, I suffered through in mm. 1980. You're gonna have your time later on. I was 25, the next youngest was 21. Mm. So I was really, I was four years older than anybody else. And I knew this was it for me. And I kind of just felt like I deserved this moment because I felt like I truly felt like I worked harder than any of those guys. I certainly worked longer. Um, and that's what you've got to believe. You, and only you really know, you know. I mean, whenever you've stepped on the blocks, Brett, and you've been at your best, I have a feeling you probably said to yourself inside, I deserve to be in this moment because I know I worked my butt off, right? Yep. And, um, and that's all it was. It wasn't rocket science. It was just I always felt like I deserved to be here. I felt like this is, this is my moment. This is my last moment. I'll, have another, I'll never have another one like it. Um, these guys will down the line. So it's my turn. Your turn's next. <laughs> mm, interesting, yeah. I mean, I had, a, I had a conversation with Gary Hall in terms of when he won um, the, the – 2004 Olympics in the 50 freestyle and he felt like he wasn't at his best at that at that moment in time but there was something about that moment where he was like I, I I'm gonna win you know I have to win and um so it's interesting you know I, I'm I've heard that twice now for, for people that felt like they weren't necessarily at their peak but still managed to find a win that's really an interesting part of uh, performance right it, it really is Brett I mean think about it I like I said, I know you've had times like that. I've seen you perform when I, even, even myself, I didn't think you'd win mm. 
or you perform at your, I like, like you just sit back and go, whoa, did you really go that fast? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, there is a certain amount of reality to what you're doing. So I felt like, um, I, I didn't put the pressure on myself. Like I'm going to win. And there's no doubt in my mind. I had doubts, you know, I don't want to, I don't want anybody out there thinking, oh, gosh, you know, he's, he, yeah, he's different. He's a high-level athlete. You know, he, it, it's easy for him. It wasn't, trust me. I went through so many valleys during my career, um, and, um, and, and I had a couple peaks that meant a lot. I, let me put it this way. I lost a lot more races than I won. Yeah. And, uh, and the great thing about, you know, somebody like Gary, you know, he wins the race by one one-hundredth of a second, if I'm memory. Mm-hmm. Yep. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for the, and, and I've seen athletes like that. We, we've seen it across all sports. I mean, look at Jason Lezak for crying out loud. Mm. I mean, the dude goes 46 flat 12 years later. It's still the fastest. And he never even went close to that again. Yeah. You know, it's just that one moment that each one of us has that gift inside us. You know, each one of us has that readiness to perform magic. Mm. I really truly believe that we were all put on this earth for a very specific purpose. And maybe me, you know, my tombstone is going to read Rowdy Gaines dash winner, Hunter freestyle 1984 Olympics, you know, and I'm okay with that. I hope it's a lot more than that, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, it'll be a lot more, no doubt. But was there, um, tell me, what were you like between prelims and finals? Because I know they didn't have semifinals back then. Yeah. What, was, what, was, what were you like in those moments? I, I struggled in those moments. It was tough for me to turn my brain off. Oh, totally. Uh, so hard. Uh, I think the biggest thing that helped me in that specific race, it didn't help me all the time. In fact, 90% of the time, I just freaked myself out. Um, but in, in, in that moment, I had an easy prelims, Brett, meaning I really laid off my legs and I kind of took a risk because leading up to that point for the last two to three years, I always had to put a lot of emphasis on the prelims because, you know, I felt like I needed to swim fast just to make the finals. Hmm. Um, and then, and then I felt like I swam so fast in the prelims I didn't feel like I had enough left at least mentally in the finals yeah the last couple years of my career so I really said I've got to take a risk here and and at least emotionally and physically emotionally I've got to lay off as much as I can and still qualify all I need to do is get a lane don't worry about getting lane four Mm. and that helped a lot um in between prelims and finals because it helped me relax Mm. I was able to take a nap and you know what naps can be like between prelims and finals, they're literally lifesavers. And yeah. I was able to sleep, which I hadn't been able to do for the last couple of years between prelims and finals. Um, I qualified third um, and uh, felt like it was the easiest, whatever it was, 50.4 I'd ever done in my life to qualify mm-hmm. third. So I knew I was ready to go a little faster. I didn't know if that was going to win, but I knew I was ready to go faster. And I was relaxed about it. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you retire from, from that type of swimming immediately after that? Or did you continue did. beyond that? You did? Yeah, I retired after the Olympics in 1984. And then uh, I didn't get in the water for like two years. Um, and then I started swimming a little bit just to kind of do something different, you know. And about three months before the 1988 Olympic trials, uh, 
I was swimming with David Marsh uh, uh, in, in Las Vegas, getting ready to swim at the World Masters Championships mm. in 1988 in Australia. They were in Australia. Mm. And, uh, and I, I ended up going to this Masters meet and I qualified for the Olympic trials. So David said, why don't you just come to trials with us? I mean, you know, it's kind of just, you're, you're training for Masters anyway. Let's, let's just go to trials and see what happens. So I did go to trials in 88. And I got seventh in the 100 freestyle. I almost made it. They take the top six, so I almost made it. But uh, but but you know by then it was okay. You know I knew I hadn't really put a hundred percent into it for a long period of time, and and it obviously showed. <laughs> How do you think those three golds changed your life? Well, it. it I was telling. Uh, I can't remember who I was telling. Oh, I was telling the, the Washington Post just came out with an article about the nineteen eighty boycott. Mm. Um, it was really good. If you get a chance to read it, you should. It's really, really good. They literally it just came out yesterday. Mm. Um, and I was telling one of the reporters that, you know, what the gold medal does, or even be, becoming an Olympian, it opens the door. You know, it 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 doesn't open it wide open, but it certainly kind of cracks it open. You still got enough. You still have to do enough to swing it wide open. Sure. It, it, but it, it, it provides an opportunity. And for me, at least it provided an opportunity to capitalize on all the hard work I went through. Dude, I went, I swam for eight years, man. Yeah. And, um, and I felt like I was deserving um, of opportunities after the Olympics. And, uh, you know, and, I, and really after the, after the Olympics, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story financially. So leading up to those Olympics, Brett, I made in that 18 months leading up to the Olympics, outside my job with the Hyatt, which was a nine to five job, technically, I made about $3,000, you know, doing a $500 swim clinic here, or selling books online. I didn't sell books online, but I sold these motivational mm -hmm. books. Yeah. Whatever it was, I made about $3,000 in 18 months. The, uh, the six months after the Olympics, I made a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Which you know, it's a lot of money. Back then, back then, it's good oh, cash. Gosh, that's a lot. It was more money I've ever seen or had in for my entire life, obviously. And mm. so, getting back to your question, what did the three gold medals? It certainly financially uh, was great because our Olympics was in at home. Our Olympics was in Los Angeles in in USA. And, uh, and, and our country was starving for an Olympics because we had gone eight years without one. And, um, and I think America was drawn to a lot of those Olympians. We had Carl Lewis and Mary Lou Retton, um, uh, Greg Luganis. I mean, we had a lot of uh, really cool athletes that I just, you know, hang on to their coattails. <laughs> well, listen, mate, you're, you're known now uh, – as a, as a nice guy. I mean, you're a nice guy. You are. You're a nice guy. Everybody likes Rowdy Gaines. Um, and if they don't, they don't know you. But, um, but what type of competitor were you? Were you a nice guy competitor? or what, what was? Because you're a competitive guy, too. Yeah. Not really. I wasn't. I was, you know, I was young, naive. I was also immature. And we all go through that immaturity stage. You know, sure. when, you're, when you're in your early 20s, late teens, you know, the whole world revolves around you, you know, and uh, there, there's always this me, myself, and I attitude when you're young. Mm. Not, not everybody's like that, but I think 
most kids in that age group are, are fairly selfish. And I was, I was, I admit it. Um, I, I do feel like I gave back in a lot of ways when I was at Auburn and uh, I was elected captain of our team the last two years, my junior and senior year. So I felt like I did have some leadership qualities to be able to lead um, and not to follow. Uh, but it, you know, it's a different time when you're young, you know, um, there's, there's a, there's, there's a lot of sacrifice that you make. And, uh, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ego involved. Mm. Um, and certainly losses tend to soothe that ego. You know what I mean? Mm. When we lose races, you know, that, that gets checked at the door a lot. And my ego got checked a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you get into the commentary? So I was asked to do the Battle of the Network Stars, which was like these different CBS, ABC, NBC. They all had like these stars of these television shows. They all came together to do these different sports. And so I, ESPN, which was a fledgling network, nobody had ever heard of ESPN in 1985. Mm -hmm. They asked me to do the commentating on the swimming part on Battle of the Network Stars. And I mean, it's kind of a long story, but to make it short, just one thing kind of led to another. I was asked to do another event and then another event. Um, and then I was asked to do the Goodwill Games, mm. um, and which, by the way, were in Brisbane one year. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was just uh, it was just kind of one thing leading to another. Uh, and then by 1992, I was asked to do the Triple Cast in Barcelona, mm. which was sort of ahead of its time. It was sort of an on not an online thing, but a thing that you through your television that you subscribe to and you got mm. three different channels. Um, and, uh, and then I was asked to do the 96 games and I, I this, um, Tokyo will be my eighth one. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So how did you develop your, your style? How did, how did you figure out who you wanted to be on, on air? You know, how, what type of commentator you wanted to be? Well, for me, Brett, I, I have never, well, there's two, two, two different sides of that. First of all, from the Olympic side, I've never professed to know, um, you know more about swimming in your little finger than I do in my entire body. You're that brilliant when it comes to technique and training and the sport and science of swimming. What I do best, which translates to TV the best, especially that typical average person that watches the Olympics, remember that 99% of the people that watch the Olympic swimming know nothing about swimming sure yeah. i would get asked questions what are those flags for mm -hmm. you know well why do they have that thing on the end of the blocks i mean th those are like these are the kinds of questions that people mm -hmm. they just don't know so for me it's passion it's the excitement that swimming brings to me i translate to the audience because mm -hmm. i love swimming i yeah. love it so much mm -hmm. the sport has done so much for me so when i'm commentating on a race i genuinely get excited and i think that's one thing that people pick up on and certainly nbc has kept me because they feel that energy too that i provide um the other side is the college commentating so i've done ncaa's for men for 32 straight years oh wow for Damn. women not 32 straight years one year i missed uh when I was at Auburn, when you guys won the very first time, didn't you win it? Weren't you in 97? What a team on the team? 97. Yeah. Yeah. We won in 97. Yeah. So that was the year that I didn't, I didn't do it, but every other year I've done it. So 
that's a little different because it's a little bit more technical um, because really only swimming people watch it. So I try to do as much from the technical side, but also genuinely excited about things. Um, I mean, it was, it was great getting excited about how yeah. Auburn did, or it's get great ex getting excited about Caleb Bressel going 17 seconds. Those things are exciting. Um, the thing I tell people is I half the people, uh, that are Auburn fans tell me I don't talk enough about Auburn. <laughs> and then half the people that don't like Auburn tell me I talk too much about Auburn. Yeah. So I know I'm doing the perfect job. <laughs> I, when I get criti criticism from half the people that say I talk too much about them and then to another half that says I talk, don't talk enough about them, I'm, I know I'm good. When everybody <laughs> hates me, it's perfect. <laughs> you know you're doing a good job man well mate well listen you know i told you i i um i got to know you as a as a young kid when you were when you're a superstar swimmer and then obviously through through the years as as a commentator back in australia got to know you and then i as luck would have it i end up at auburn university in in i came in the in the at christmas i came christmas day here's a funny story so i have christmas day in australia yeah, I have Christmas Day in Australia. It's sunny. We go to the beach in the morning. We have this beautiful lunch. Then my parents put me on an airplane, kiss me goodbye. You go into America. I turn up to America. I land in Atlanta, Georgia. It's snowing. It's miserable. It's freezing. It's winter. So I have, and then I have Christmas dinner with my with my family uh, that I was staying with in in Atlanta. So I had two Christmases that year. But oh my. God. <laughs> must have been exhausted that christmas night it was, it was crazy a summer christmas and a winter christmas all in the same day it was nuts but um and this is when you came to coach or came no to... this is when i came to swim in in 96 yeah i, I turned up not christmas day 96 man i mean were you like scared to death scared to death i didn't know what was going on i just knew that i needed to get out of the situation i was in i was like i need a change i just missed the olympic team i watched the olympics on tv i was devastated I thought my career 90, was over. 92? No, 96. No, 96, yeah. 96. Um, you know, I just watched my friends swim. You know, I was friends with Michael Clem and all these, you know, Scott Miller, these people. Um, so I was devastated. I thought that was it. And then I had this chance to come to Auburn University. I knew nothing about Auburn University. I knew nothing about college swimming. I just knew there was an opportunity for me. And, um, and I, and I was going to take it. And so I turn up at, at Auburn and I, and I meet all these amazing athletes, yeah. Nick Shackle, you know, Nick Shackle and, uh, <laughs> you know, all the, all these incredible, yeah. You know, Adam Jurga, these types of people, these Auburn swimmers. And, and then David Marsh is my coach. So I just fall into the right place at the right time and everything clicks for me. You know, 97, I have this incredible year. I, I end up winning NCAAs. I end up meeting my, 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 um, you know, the person that I idolize, Rowdy Gaines, we become friends, you know, and, and everything, everything I touch turns to gold. I'm winning NCAAs, the, the team wins national champ. So we're, we're, we're great friends. Everything's great. The, the, the story that comes into this is the following year when things don't go as well. And uh, we're actually at the SEC championships and you had, you had only ever said really nice things to me really nice things to me like you were just the nicest person i'd ever met comes to the 1998 sec championships i believe we're in kentucky somewhere like that it was, it was it was some small pool somewhere and i was swimming terrible and i and i was swimming really bad and i was feeling sorry for myself because i was feeling bad 
And I remember sitting in the stands and you came up to me. You just came and sat next to me. And you just laid into me. I mean, you, you said words that I'd never heard come out of your mouth before. <laughs> and you were, you were cussing and you were, you were, you were yelling and you were, you were getting stuck into me. And I was, I was like really taken back. I was like, what, what, who is this man? You know? And, and, and I find out later that David had set this all up. Obviously David had said to you, Rowdy, go and go and talk to Brett and lied into him a little bit, lied into him a bit and you ripped into me. But I tell you what, it had an enormous impact on me. I mean, I, I stopped feeling sorry for myself immediately at that point and, um, and swam way, <laughs> yes, yeah, swam way better. But that was, it was, that's the impact that you had on me. That's, and you've always had that type of impact on me. You say anything and to me it's gold, you know, it's like, it just means that much to me. And, and I've had moments where some of my swim have, I've asked you to do the same thing. You know, I asked you to talk to Bruno Fratis for me and I've asked you to talk to Cesar Cielo and yeah. many athletes along the way that you've had really intimate conversations with. Um, so I know that when you talk, people listen and, and I certainly did, but, but I just remember that, that, that moment that we had together in 98 where you ripped me and I was like, <laughs> it was, it was a huge impact moment for me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was amazing. Blame, blame that on David for sure. <laughs> that was definitely a David Marsh moment for sure. Yeah, Pull, pulling the strings. But, um, you probably had a lot more. You had one with me like that. And, you, and that was probably just one a day with David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was every day at that point in time. So, I mean, listen, you are a proud Auburn alum, though. Like, why, why are you so proud and why, why are you so passionate about it? Well, you know, I, I think it's... I think it's somewhere at Auburn. I, I think I saw it. I, I, I literally, I grew from a boy to a man there. I, I, it changed my life to some little skinny little kid from Winter Haven, Florida, um, to uh, a situation where I got so much support, Brett. I mean, we're not perfect, you know. Auburn's not perfect. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the Shangri-La that, that – everybody thinks about when they go off to college. There is no such thing. But I will tell you that for me and my personal experience, overall, mm -hmm. um, when you go to Auburn, man, I mean, you, you've always got that bond. You, you, you're part of a family. And, 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 you know, like I said, I was with Caleb this last weekend. He'll tell you the same exact thing about Florida. Mm -hmm. And he'll tell you the same thing about going to Texas. You know, you, you feel part of a family. And that's just the way it was for me. I felt personally a bond um, with the people that were, were at school there. Certainly my coaches, my teammates, um, the student body, um, the faculty. I mean, I, I just got a tremendous amount of support. And, and I've, never, I've never forgotten that. I mean, there's been some times where, you know, there's been some good days and bad days with them, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But overall, you know, I feel very fortunate about my personal experience there. Tell us about Richard Quick, your coach. I mean, I had time with him. I had a very short time, 18 months. We won a national where... championship with him. We won a national championship together, man. Um, one of the proudest moments in my life was holding that trophy above my head in honor of Richard when he was at home dealing with his brain cancer. Um, Still one of the greatest NCAA championship teams in history, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. you yeah. guys were unbelievable. 2009, yeah. I'll never forget it. Well, listen, when you're fighting for something, you've, you've, you've got a reason to go in there and battle. You know, I, we had a reason. Still, you guys still have a record from 2009, don't you? I think. 
one of the times, I mean, you guys, are, it was so fast. I mean, so you guys, oh my gosh, you, you had a great team there. You had a great yeah. team. Yeah, but, but Richard, was, Richard was a great man. So tell me about the impact that he had on you. Well, you know, I, I won three gold medals. I gave one to my mom, one to my dad, and I gave one to Richard um, because I could not have done it um, without him. You know, my, he, he was literally like my second father. Um, I, you know, I miss him. I miss him a lot. I, I think about him all the time. Mm. I think about, you know, I still get emotional when I talk about him. I, he, you know, he, he impacted my life so much in and out of the water, you know, I mean, um, so he, uh, he just was, such a good person, you know, and such a good role model. Um, so positive. Uh, I don't think I ever heard a negative word come out of his mouth. In fact, I remember one year he, he had the team eliminate the words can't and don't and won't. When he heard them, he'd kick you out of practice and stuff. Mm. I mean, he was, he just, he was just so full of positivity and, and, uh, and love, you know, I loved him very much. Um, and, uh, and he was a great coach. <laughs> he was. Now, right? I mean, he, he was. won 12 national titles, I think, or 13. I can't remember. But he, he won a lot. And um, and so, anyway. Well, I think like you're, you're commentating, it's, his passion was authentic too. You know, like his passion oh, yeah. for swimming was purely, <laughs> was purely right. authentic. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. When he was on the side of the deck, right? Mm. When he was starting to yell. You could feel that in the water, right? Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, I miss that so much, man. He was, uh, he was something. He, uh, yeah. and you know, and one specific instance, I'll uh, just a, uh, a quick sixty-second story. You know, before the Olympics, and this is one reason why Mark Stockwell, who's your teammate, who I mean, what was your Australian countryman? Yeah, he swam in '84. He won the silver medal. Anyway. The day before my race, which is the third day at the Olympics, he noticed that a starter was a very quick starter. Basically, take your mark, go, you know. So he came to me literally the day before the race, Brett, and changed my start because I came down really slow. Mm. In fact, I was the only one to do the track start in those Olympic Games, and I would try to time it coming down. And, um, and, and he said, if this guy starts your race, you're going to get left on the blocks. You've got to come down fast, so let's go work on it. And so for that whole day before the Olympics, we worked on me and the cadence of me coming down quick. And if anybody, anybody's watched the, uh, uh, the video of that race, you'll know that I got off to a perfect start. Mark, Mark got left on the blocks, and, um, and, and I won. And, yeah. And it was literally because Richard, if he had not told me, I would have come down slowly. And I would have gotten fourth or fifth, like I told you. <laughs> I can absolutely see Richard doing that, you know, um, tell, telling you to, hey, the, the start is quick. Risk, right? he, 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 that's what so, was so cool about Richard was the fact that he was a leader, but he was not afraid to fail. Mm. Uh, and, and there are not a lot of people like that, you know. That mm. fear of failure is pretty strong. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. Um, you said something that was interesting that you were the only swimmer to do the track start. Where did that come from and why did you do, why were you doing it? So I was the very first swimmer to ever use it. Um, I, it, Richard and I went to it again, a bit of a long story to make it short. We went to a meet in, in Europe. The, I don't know if you remember the old Paris tilt meet, um, mm -hmm. 
I think they stopped that in the early 90s. But anyway, there was a meet in Paris every year. And it's sort of like the one in, uh, what do they do every year Like Man Ostrom or something? Yes, Man Ostrom. That's exactly what it was like. Um, back then it was called the Tilt. It was in Paris. Anyway, we went to it. And we went to a track, an indoor track meet beforehand. And mm. um, it was, uh, and we watched this track. He said, you know, because I'd get left on the blocks once we got, went to the no false start rule. You know, when I swam, Brett, we were allowed three false starts. Yeah. First one. Second one, you weren't DQ'd until the third one. So Crazy. technically, you were allowed two false starts. Mm -hmm. And I always false started. I did it on purpose, you know, um, just to get wet and loose, relax. And when we, when we went to the no false start rule, it really affected my start. And so he, you know, he had this brainstorm about the track start. Um, Dara Torres also um, was a big part of that and her coach. Um, so they, that we all kind of got together and said, this is, this is what we were going to do. But I was the only swimmer to do it in 84 because uh, uh, it had been, had not been uh, generally accepted in 1984. Wow. Were the blocks slippery? I mean, did you have to put a towel down at that point? Yeah, put a like? towel down. I remember they're flat too. There was no yeah. angle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and most blocks were about this big. And yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I put a towel down. Didn't get a lot of foot space in the back, but uh, it, it, it got a little um, – it got a little grippy uh, with a towel. Um, and the fact that I, I, the first time I ever did that start, like I said, in the Paris tilt me, they DQ'd me um, after the race. I did it. They came over and said, you know, that, well, that start is illegal. So you're DQ'd. And uh, so again, Richard goes to the rule book and, and uh, there's nothing in the rule book that says it and nobody knew about it then. So I got reinstated, but uh, yeah, I, I I feel pretty fortunate that I was able to master that track start for the Olympics. Wow. Did you prefer to swim the 100 or the 200? What was your favorite event? Early 200, later 100. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I was in college, it was definitely the 200. Uh, I just, I love the 200. But, you know, as I got older, <laughs> you know, like you swam the 100 a few times in your life. But you <laughs> love that 100, but as you got a little older, that 100. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to the 50. Stick to the 50. <laughs> Well, that's the kind of way I felt about uh, about it when I was later on in my career. You know, 24, 25, I was like, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to stay away from that 200. And uh, and actually not making the team in the 200 was a blessing in disguise because, you know, training for the 100 and 200 are two completely different things. Mm. And, uh, and so me not making the 200 was really able to, I was able to put that total focus for the next month on just the hundred. So again, Richard and his positivity came up to me after the 200. I didn't make it, you know, and that was the first race. I only had one more chance in the hundred. He said, this is going to be perfect. You know, this, this creates this perfect storm for you now because you're not going to make the 200. You don't have to worry about training. So you make the hundred. Now we, now all we have to do is just train for the hundred for LA and you're going to win the hundred. So it was, uh, it was a great pep talk. I got the same sort of pep talk from Tracy Calkins, um, who was a teammate of mine. And, uh, and so the 100 definitely became something that, you know, I adored. It, I always liked the 100, mm. but I liked the 200 better yeah. early. Well, what was your race strategy then going into, let's say, the 8400, like in terms of were you, were you wanting to get out fast or were you trying to back end it as a 200 swimmer? I wanted to get out as fast as I could without legs, you know, or at least without 
feeling like I'm putting my legs into it. You know, you obviously can't swim a hundred without creating um, some kick behind you, but. So you wanted your rhythm to be up top then? Yes. If I could, if I could feel like I could flip at the 50 and say, Oh my gosh, I really didn't put my legs into it. That first 50, I've got all my legs that helped tremendously. I did the same thing in the prelims, but I laid off my legs again, the second 50. And I said, okay, this is one more risk I'm going to take. I'm going to, and I knew I got off to a good start. So I said, if I can lay off my legs as much as possible, this first 50 and be just close, I didn't need to even be the lead, but I needed to be right there. Then I thought, well, you know what? I may have a chance. And, uh, and that's what happened. I got off to a great start, laid off the legs, the first 50, kept my breath control in check, you know, breathe every four, every two, every four, every two. That's the way I swam the first 50. I didn't go into any kind of oxygen debt going off that wall, that, that first turn or only turn. And, uh, and then started breathing every stroke coming home. And, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, and still, I mean, I was hurt in the last five meters, <laughs> another two or three meters and Mark Stockwell would have caught me. That was it. <laughs> I made it. I made it to a hundred meters. That's all that counts. Were you ever the world record hauler in the hundred? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I had the world record. Um, I had the world record in the 100 and the 200 in 1980. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, I had it from 80 to 85 in the 100 and the 280 to 84. Oh, wow. When was the first time you broke 50 seconds for the first time? I went um, 49, 6 at the 1980 Olympic trials. Mm. Um, that was the first time I ever broke. Wow. How, what did that feel like that breakthrough? You know, that, that barrier, you know, the first time you yeah. broke 20, you know, yeah. uh, first time you, you break 23 in the 50. I mean, there, there, there's certain milestones obviously that, you know, you, you remember. And yeah. uh, for me, uh, one, uh, 150 in the 200 and, uh, and 50 in the, in the, in the hundred were, were certainly ones that, uh, were pretty cool and 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 it was it was at back then brett i mean now you know gosh caleb russell goes 49 and 100 fly but um back then <laughs> i was only the third swimmer in history to break 50 um so it was pretty cool Dante skinner yeah um, and montgomery are the only other two so i felt like it was really great company obviously yeah very cool well listen mate before we go um you know the the you're you're the olympic champion in the hundred What's your prediction for next year? You've got Kyle Chalmers, who is the defending Olympic champion. You've got, you've got uh, obviously Caleb, who's probably the favorite, and and they they swam at the World Championships, uh, I think in nineteen, you know, a couple of years, but a year ago or so, and um, it, it came down to the last stroke, you know, between the two of them. So, what do you think? What's your prediction on this one? Well, you know, it's so hard to predict now, if you would have asked me four months ago, I am going to say Caleb, I'm going to go with the easy choice uh, just because of the way he was kind of riding that momentum from Mm. uh, 2019, but a year can make a huge difference. Kyle's young. Um, He's just going to keep getting better. That guy's not going away. He Caleb only beat him by what a 10th. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. Wasn't much. So um, it's going to be a battle between the two of them. And then you saw, I mean, just from the Americans alone, there's like, Mm seven or eight guys that go 48, five or better or something like yeah. that. Something crazy. And so any one of those young guys could, could, uh, could make a huge leap next summer. I, I wouldn't be surprised about that. 
but I, I'm still going to go with Caleb. One last quick story. Uh, and I'm not, you're the first one I told this. So we got to keep it a secret just between you and I and a million other people now listen. <laughs> um, so Caleb came and did a swim camp with me yep. uh, this past weekend here in, here in Daytona beach. And he was awesome with the kids. And, uh, so he's racing the kids, you know, and at the end he goes, yeah, why don't I come up and get him swimming 50 for him? Let everybody watch me swim a 50. So he's in a speedo, right? Hmm. Um, I can't tell you what he went because he, he just wants to keep it humble, you know, under promise over deliver. But let's just put it this way. It's the second fastest time in history if you take away Caleb Dressel. So think about that for a second. Oh. Let's pretend Caleb doesn't, doesn't exist. Was it short course yards or long course meters? Short, short course yards. And, wow. and it's, you know, no warm up. Um, and I have, I'm, I'm quick on the start and, uh, and long, you know, long finish. So I waited until he touched and it, dude, it was fast. It was really fast. He's good, man. There's no doubt about it, man. The guy is super talented. Do you, do you see similarities? Huh? Do you see any similarities between you and you're at your peak and him? Is there anything there? Yeah, he, uh, went a tenth faster than I did in the hundred. No, three tenths faster in the hundred fly than I went in the hundred free to win the gold. He went forty nine five, Brett, last summer in the hundred butterfly. I went forty nine eight to win the gold medal in the hundred freestyle. He's a freak, I know. <laughs> let that sink in. So similarities. That's the only similarity I see. And he's American. <laughs> and he's American. That's right. No, you look at his body, dude. Are you kidding? My body never looked like that. Oh yeah. My God. I was yeah. an ugly fool in the water. He's gifted, man. There's no doubt about it. But you're Rowdy Gaines, and there's only one of you, man. And I'm, I'm thankful that you came on the, the podcast. Um, where, where did Ambrose come from? Is that a, is that a past name? Family yeah, name. Ambrose Gaines IV is my, my full name. I don't have a middle name. Rowdy was a nickname I was born with. It came from an old TV series called Rawhide. Clint Eastwood played a character called Rowdy Yates. And, uh, you know, my dad and my mom just kind of thought it was a cute nickname. And it, here it is many years later. I won't tell you how many years later, but many years <laughs> later, I'm still Rowdy. So, still Rowdy. Um, but, yeah, Ambrose is, is a family name. That's cool, man. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. I know it's valuable and uh, love seeing you. So, um, can't, wait to, you, can't wait to hug you again, man. You. So proud of you. And uh, it's, uh, it's a real honor calling you uh, my brother my Olympic brother, my Auburn brother, and in many ways, my brother, period. So I love you. Love you too, man. Thanks for being here and uh, say hi to Judy and the family for me, right? You too. Take care. All right. See you, buddy. Bye.